You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, it's a real honor for me to be here today, uh, two days before Good Friday. And as I was preparing, uh, I started thinking about what is the one word that would capture the essence uh, of the cross and the crucifixion. And the word that I came up with was salvation. Because if you think about it, the heart of salvation is the forgiveness of our sins. Isaiah tells us 700 years before Jesus even showed up on the scene, he talks about the suffering servant to come who would be pierced through for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. Then he goes on to say that all of our iniquities would fall on him. And the reason they fall on him is so they wouldn't have to fall on us. Remember what the angel said to Joseph about Jesus before he was even born. He said, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. So you see that Jesus' mission was well established well before he was even born. But the big question is, and this is what we deal so much as far as the work that we do and the men that, that we, uh, we teach and, and counsel, the big question is, how do I make sure that my sins are forgiven? In other words, how do I know that I have this salvation that Christ has brought us? How do I know that I have a place in heaven? And in thinking through this, in the universal church, there are two predominant views. The first view is what I subscribe to, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, It's a gift that you receive. Now the second view is different. It's more of a salvation is about faith plus your works. In other words, that your works play a role in your salvation. And let me just give you two quick thoughts on both of these. The the first, and I, I get this from people all the time, it says, the problem that I have with your view, Richard, is it's, it's too easy. Jesus does everything at the cross, and all you have to do is put your faith in him. It's as if Jesus does everything, and you do very little. But you know, this is what grace is all about. It's counterintuitive. Because everything in life we normally earn. And so people normally realize a reason, shouldn't this hold true for salvation? I think a really good way to understand this is think of a, uh, of a man who's worked hard, he's built a huge fortune, he's never married, and then he meets a, a school teacher who's never made a lot of money, but she's a wonderful woman, and the two meet and they get married. And the day they get married, all of his wealth 
All of his fortune is hers. Through this union of marriage. But I think this is a picture of God's grace. I mean, we're like the teacher. As she receives her husband's monetary wealth, we receive the wealth of God's grace. We did nothing. Jesus did everything on the cross. And when we are united with him, everything that he's done on the cross is true for us. We are credited with his righteousness. And it's by faith and not by what we do. Now the real problem with the second view, the faith plus the works, is if you think about this, you have no assurance of your salvation. Because you don't know if you've been good enough. I mean, think about it. Great question. How good do you have to be to get into heaven? About five years ago, a man came to my office with the intent of talking to me about this very issue. And he was very bright. He was very articulate. We had a really wonderful conversation. We bantered back and forth. And his view was that salvation is faith that has to be maintained by works. In other words, it was a faith plus works. And... Neither one of us convinced each other uh, as far as, or I think, really had an impact, except that night. I thought to myself, I wonder, could I have this wrong? Could I be wrong in what I believe about salvation? And now this was not a crisis of faith of any kind, and I didn't go run off to, to speak to my friends who are theologians. But what I just decided to do was ask myself, or really answer the question is, what does the Bible really say? Because that's what matters. That's the ultimate authority. And I felt like I already knew what the answer was, but I, I, I made this decision without really telling anybody. As I read through the Bible this year, I'm going to write down every verse that I encounter that touches on this issue. And so I did. And I had a long list of verses when the year was, was over. And what I concluded after having done this is that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone. It's a gift you receive. It's not a result of your works. Now, I'm not going to read all those verses to you because we don't have time, but I'd like to read three because if this is a question in your mind, I think it's important for you to wrestle with it. I think it's crucial that we get it right. But listen to these three verses. The first comes from Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He saved us, not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Philippians 3.9 That I will be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from following the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis 
of faith. And probably one of the most well-known is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of good works that no one may boast. You know, this struck me very powerfully as I was preparing this, that if my salvation is determined by my works, it nullifies the role of grace. I mean, grace doesn't play a role anymore. And yet the word grace is used 122 times in the New Testament. It's a central part of our faith. We're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God that you receive. Now this leads us to really what I want to talk to you about today. And it's this perplexing question. I got it just a couple of weeks ago from a guy. You may have thought it too. This is what he asked me. This man three or four weeks ago says, if salvation is determined by, is, is, if, he says, it seems that if all we have, done, have to do is to put our faith in Christ and we're forgiven, then what keeps us from going out and living however we want? Because I'm saved by grace. I have faith. What incentive do I have for obeying God? You know, Paul asks that very same question, or he addresses it in Romans 3:31, and this is from the Phillips translation. He says, are we then undermining or nullifying the law by this insistence on faith? He says, not at all. He says, we put the law in its proper place. In other words, we put the law in its proper place as it relates to salvation. And it does have a proper place in our lives. So what is that proper place? Of obeying God, of doing good works. Well, first of all, and this is, I think, is critical to understand that when a person puts their faith in Christ, the word that's used in the New Testament often is the word believe. If you believe in Jesus. Now, I've looked up every word Every time the word believe is used, I've looked it up in the Greek, and it all comes from one word, pistio. And it means more than just believing it in your head. It means to believe in, to entrust, to rely on, to cling to. The example that I use often of this is imagine that you wake up one morning, and you know something's terribly wrong with you. You rush to the doctor, sends you to the hospital, they run a battery of tests. They come back and say, we've got bad news, but we also have good news. The bad news is you have a rare form of cancer. If it goes untreated, you'll be dead in six months. But the good news is that I can do surgery on you. And with the new chemotherapy we have, I can guarantee you 100% recovery. Now, your first thought is to believe it up here in your brain, in your head, and you rejoice that you'll be okay. But to truly believe in the doctor, you have to say, Doctor, my life, I put my life in your hands. I want to follow you. I will do whatever you tell me to do. 
You see, and to me, one of the greatest definitions of what a Christian is is that he is a follower of Christ. Now, if you are a follower of Christ, you're not going to take the approach to life that I can do whatever I want to. In fact, I would be so bold to say that if you're a Christian and your attitude is, you know, I can live however I want to, I question whether you have true faith. Now, the second, I want to make a second point about this that I think comes from Jesus himself. He says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. There's a great story that Tony Campolo tells. It's a true story. It happened with, to, with, it involved one of his friends, a guy by the name of, as I recall, Ian Barkley. Barkley was on, he was in Victoria Station, was getting on a train in London, headed somewhere out into the countryside. It was the middle of the day, and there weren't many people on the train. Except right in front of him, there were two men sitting together. He said, all of a sudden, one of the men fell into the floor with a seizure. And his friend gently kneeled down and administered some kind of medication. And the seizure finally stopped. And he picked him up, put a blanket around him, and put him back in the chair, in the seat. And then he turns around to Barkley and said, I am so sorry. This rarely happens in the day and out in public. And he begins to tell him their story. They fought together in Vietnam. They were best friends. He said, we were in the midst of a fierce battle. And there was an explosion. And he said, it just, he said, it, it floored me. I was unconscious, all bloodied up. And he said, when I finally kind of came to, I realized somebody was dragging me through the jungle. And it was my friend here. And he was injured just as well. And every step he took, he screamed. He was in so much pain. He said, I finally yelled out, leave me here. Save yourself. And he said to me, if you die here, I'm going to die with you. And he said, I passed out again. He says, the next time I woke up, I was in a, in a hospital. He said, it took, both of us were, were severely wounded. Several months later, we were discharged. He said, I went back to America. I was living my life, and then I got word of his condition. He said, I didn't have a family, wasn't married. So I quit my job. I sold everything I had. And I came over here to take care of him. And Barclay says, that's one of the greatest stories I've ever heard. And the man said, not really. Because after what he did for me, there is nothing that I would not be willing to do for him. And you know, that's a great statement. And that really, as Christians, that should be our approach to Jesus. Because after what he did for me at the cross, there should be nothing that I would not be willing to do for him. 
Now, the third proper place of good works, of following the law, it gets right down to it's a wisdom issue. Think about this. God's laws are not arbitrary. He just didn't say, I'm going to pull these out and just impose them on humanity. You see, they fit our design. They enabled us to function well. We were made to operate a certain way. And this is what people just don't seem to get. God designed us. He knows what we need. His word prescribes what we need. I love to tell people God's word is not a bunch of rules you follow. It's like an owner's manual. It teaches you how to flourish. Think about the owner's manual in your car. I don't know if you've ever opened it up. But it explains how the car works and how to maintain it. And to fail to do that leads to breakdown and disintegration. And if you've ever looked, if you've looked at your owner's manual recently, it's unbelievably thick. And the reason is, is because automobiles are very complicated. Well, so are we. We're very complicated, but God has given us an owner's manual. He's given us his word to follow. And I think you know that what I'm about to say is true, that so much of the pain and sorrow we often experience is because we break the fabric of God's design and consequently we reap what we sow. You probably know this in your own life. I know I do. You've probably seen it maybe in some of the lives of the people that you love. But clearly there's a proper place for good works as a follower of Christ to demonstrate our love for him and because of the difference it makes in our lives when we follow it. I want to close with one of my favorite illustrations as it relates to grace and salvation. It's a true story I heard 35, maybe 40 years ago. I heard a minister gave it in a sermon. And all these years I've been using this story and I've been telling people it's a true story. And then several years ago, you know, with the thought of having intellectual integrity, I thought I might try to figure out, did it really happen? Well, thanks be to Google, I was able to go and get the information very quickly. And it is a true story. And it's very powerful. It's about two men, George Wilson and James Porter. In 1829, they robbed a U.S. mail carrier. Both were captured. Both were tried. And in May of 1830, they, found, they were found guilty of charges including robbery and putting the life of the driver at peril. Both Wilson and Porter received their sentences. They were to be executed by hanging on July the 2nd. And Porter was executed on time. But Wilson had friends in high places. They were able to persuade President Andrew Jackson to give him a pardon. And he did. 
Wilson would have to serve some time in prison, but he would be pardoned and would go free. But this is what's so incredible. George Wilson refused the pardon. This was a statement he released. He says, I choose to waive and decline any advantage or protection which might be supposed to arise from the pardon. He said, I have nothing to say, and I don't wish in any manner to avail myself in order to avoid sentence. In other words, he rejected the pardon. Of course, they had no idea what to do. He had been sentenced to die, but he would received a presidential pardon, so they did probably what we would all do. They sent it to the courts. The courts really weren't sure what to do. It made its way to the Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court determined this. This is, this is from the, the decision, exact words. The court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. It is a grant to him. It is his property. And he may accept it or not as he pleases. But listen to the actual words of Chief Justice John Marshall. He said, quote, a pardon is an act of grace. Think about that. Wilson did nothing to deserve a pardon. It was an act of grace. It, proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws. But delivery is not complete if you don't accept it. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and we have no power in a court to force it on him. And so they hanged him. George Wilson chose to die. Now I think this story is so insightful because every single one of us is in the same boat that George Wilson found himself in. We're all guilty. As the Apostle Paul says, we all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. But we're also like George Wilson in this way. We have received a pardon. When Jesus went to the cross, he pardoned the entire world. It's a gift of grace, as Marshall said. It's nothing you earn. But as Chief Justice Marshall pointed out, the pardon is not complete without acceptance. And it can be rejected. So as we leave today, I would ask you this question. What have you done with God's pardon? Have you received it? Have you believed in Jesus? Are you his follower? This, I believe, is the most significant issue in all of life. Let me close in a prayer. Father, I'm truly grateful for just the opportunity to be here. I'm thankful for each person here. And most significantly, Father, we are truly grateful for the gift of your son, Jesus, 
and his willingness to go to the cross to be pierced through for our transgressions. Help us to see and understand, Father, that our role is to receive you, receive the pardon, and then to follow you with our lives. I pray that that would be the intent of every heart here. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.